WTBN Pinellas Park, W262CP Bayonet Point. Brought to you by Moss Nissan. Locations in portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. See, understand this, by nature, no one is born generous and thoughtful and and giving and and sensitive to others, especially complete strangers. We're not like that. We're, We're not by nature, we're not givers, we're takers. But it takes God's work of grace in our lives to transform us from being self-absorbed, stingy tightwads who think only about spending money on ourselves and our pleasures into generous people who share their money with others, expecting nothing in return. There's a popular story about Henry Ford that he had offered to donate $5,000 toward construction of a new medical facility. In those days, you could buy a lot of stuff with $5,000. The next day, in the newspaper, the headline read, Henry Ford contributes $50,000 to the local hospital. Ford was understandably upset and called the fundraiser demanding a correction. Well, the fundraiser said, that's no problem. He said he'd just run another article explaining that Ford was reducing his gift by (laughs) $45,000. Ford, of course, realized that would be pretty terrible publicity for him, so he agreed to give the $50,000, but only under one condition. They had to put an inscription over the door that kind of paraphrased Matthew 25 from the King James, saying, I came among you and you took me in. (laughs) If you think we're not naturally greedy, you just watch two toddlers not sharing their toys. Welcome. You're listening to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Verse by Verse is Lakeside's way of making Pastor Steve's practical biblical messages available to listeners like you. We're working our way through an in-depth look at the nature of the church. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20 are our jumping off point as we explore what God has to say about the founding and operation of the church Jesus told Peter that he, meaning Jesus, would build. In our last broadcast, we began to consider the sometimes awkward subject of giving to the church in order to finance its operations. Far too many people who are happy to accept Jesus' free gift of eternal life are not as happy to underwrite his construction project, the church. I once heard about a mother who wanted to teach her daughter a moral lesson, so she gave the little girl a quarter and a dollar for church. She told her, put whichever one you want in the collection plate and keep the other for yourself. Well, when they were coming out of the church, the mother asked her daughter which amount she had given. Well, said the little girl, I was going to give the dollar, but just before the collection, the man in the pulpit said that we should all be cheerful givers. I knew I'd be a lot more cheerful if I gave the quarter, so I did. The man in the pulpit, of course, was quoting 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, but I'll read verse 6 also. Now, this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Here's Pastor Steve now to share some thoughts on Paul's teaching about giving. Now, Giving ought to be characterized by what Paul teaches here. Number one, he says, it ought to be characterized first by generosity and not stinginess. That's what he means about sowing bountifully, not stinginess. Secondly, it ought to be characterized by determining in advance how much you are going to give. That's what Paul means when he says, as he has purposed 
in his heart. Determine beforehand in your heart what you're going to give. Let me translate this for you. Giving is not sporadic. It's not on the spur of the moment. Oh, I think I'll do this. Oh, I feel like doing this on a Sunday. No, I don't feel like giving on this Sunday. I I might give next Sunday. I don't know. Paul says, no, ahead of time, purpose in your heart what you're going to give and make sure it's based on generosity, sowing bountifully. Then he says, your giving should be characterized by a great sense of joy and freedom. That's what he means when he says, not grudgingly or under compulsion. Don't give with a sad reluctance in your heart like, oh, it's Sunday. I've got to give. But you are thinking, I don't want to do this. This is duty. This is obligation. I could, I could spend this all on myself and I've got to do this. Paul says, don't, don't do it that way. Don't give with sadness in your heart. In fact, notice what he says in verse seven. He says, God loves a cheerful giver. That's how we should give. The Greek word for cheerful gives us our English word hilarious. And I don't think that means that, that you're giggling as the offering plate is going by you. I don't think that's what it means at all. What it does mean is that God has a special affection in his heart for those who give with an attitude of pleasure and happiness in their hearts. That's exactly what he means. He he loves all, but he has a special love for those who give cheerfully, who don't give reluctantly, who don't give begrudgingly. See, folks, the way the Lord provides for the ministry needs of his church is through the generosity of his people. And there's a concern in my heart as your pastor teacher that there may be some at Lakeside who are not aware of their biblical responsibility to give generously in the support of of this church. And and I think I, I have to share some of the blame for that because as your pastor teacher, I need to teach you on that. Uh, teaching about money is not an easy thing for me to do. I tend to shy away from it, but it is a responsibility that I do have. And so I want to make sure that you're taught on this, and this fits in with our series on the church. It may be that some are so new to the Christian life and certainly new to the ministry of Lakeside that you have never been taught about this. So I want us to see what the scripture says about generous giving. And we're going to see this by looking at a very unique passage of scripture. I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul sets before us a group of churches who were great models of generosity. This is how a generous church should look, should look like. This is how a generous church should operate. These are how generous Christians should behave. And I want to read to you verses 1 through 5 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul says, now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Now, I know you must be thinking, say what? What is this talking about? You'll understand, I I trust, when we get through this. Let me first give you the background of these verses so you'll understand where this is coming from. The background of this passage is that Paul wanted the Corinthians, he's writing to the Corinthians, 
This letter is labeled 2 Corinthians because he's writing to the church at Corinth. He wanted the Corinthian church and the people there to be generous and, and to take up a collection for another church whose members were in deep financial trouble. And in fact, it was a crisis. And the church that he had in mind was none other than that church at Jerusalem that we just talked about. The church where the apostles were the first elders, where they continued in the apostolic doctrine, where the church there was sharing with one another. That church had some difficult times. The Jewish believers, and there were only Jewish believers at that point and in that church, they had some difficulty. You see, the believers in the church at Jerusalem were faced with some serious economic problems, partly because as new Christians, they were now ostracized by their unsaved Jewish family, by the unsaved Jewish community, who would have refused to do business with them. You join yourself to this group, which they called a sect, the way we're having nothing to do with you. In fact, we'll put you out of the synagogue. We'll excommunicate you. You won't have anything to do with us. We won't have anything to do with you. So economically, it was very difficult. Also, because according to Acts 11, we know that there was a devastating famine that affected the land. In Acts 11, we read verses 27 through 30, some prophets came down from Jerusalem and said there's going to be a famine in the land. So these people were hurting. They were hurting financially, hurting because the unsaved Jewish community wouldn't do business with them. Their family members kicked them out, at least some of them. We're not supporting you anymore. And, and then there was a devastating famine. So they're really hurting. And Paul, being aware of the severe physical and financial needs facing these Jewish believers in Jerusalem, he's burdened. His heart is burdened to instruct Gentile churches everywhere that he ministers to take an offering, a collection for these hurting believers in Jerusalem. That is precisely what he's doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. That's why he says, when you meet the first day of the week, set aside some. In context, he's talking about set aside for the church at Jerusalem. And when I get there, he means, I will take this offering and make sure they get it. I'll make sure that it's delivered to them. That's his first letter. By the time he writes what we call the second letter to them, Paul has learned that the Corinthians have failed to complete this collection. Number of factors entered into this, which we don't need to cover now, but Paul has learned that the Corinthians fail to complete this collection. So what does he do? He doesn't give up. He doesn't leave it like that. He tries to stimulate and encourage the Corinthians to be generous in their giving by telling them about a group of Christians in, in several churches located throughout a region of northern Greece called Macedonia. These people, he said, they were extremely generous. And they, they supported the churches or the church at Jerusalem. So he holds these Macedonians up not only as models of generosity for the Corinthians, but they then become models of generosity for every Christian who has ever lived, including us. They are the divine examples of what generous a generous church needs to be. See, in writing about these Macedonians, Paul not only tells the Corinthians that these people were extremely liberal and generous in their giving, but he explains what went behind the scenes, their hearts, their motives for giving. He, he shows us really what a generous congregation looks like. 
And he does this by presenting four characteristics of a generous church. Today, we'll look at two of these characteristics. Lord willing, we'll finish it by looking at the next two. But folks, if we are going to understand the nature of the church, then we have to understand the nature of generosity in our giving because that's Christ's plan to support his work on earth as he builds and rules his church. And so as we unfold this passage of scripture, we're going to see, at least begin to see, what it means to be generous. These are the characteristics that should describe us collectively as a church body, as well as individually as believers in our local church. So the first characteristic of a generous church is that their giving is motivated by the grace of God. Their giving is motivated by the grace of God. Notice verse one. He writes, now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Paul begins his appeal to the Corinthians by informing them about several churches I said in the northern region of Greece, known then as Macedonia. And we don't know, by the way, all the churches that existed in that region. We know of some. You know of some of them. The Philippians, the church at Philippi was in this region. The Thessalonians, the church at Thessalonica was in this region. A church known as the Bereans, because they their, their town was called Berea. Though there's no letter written to them, they're mentioned in Acts 17, they were in this region. Now notice carefully what Paul says about these Macedonian churches in relation to their giving. The first thing the apostle does is tell the Corinthians about, and I quote, the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Now why does Paul mention the grace of God? Well, by mentioning the grace of God, he's simply referring to the salvation of these Macedonian believers because they were saved by grace. That's the way every believer is saved, by God's undeserved, unmerited favor. And the verses that follow reveal that his purpose in bringing up their salvation and the grace of God in their lives is to point out that grace had radically affected an important area of their lives, Grace and salvation had transformed their character so that they had become generous with their money as demonstrated by their liberal giving to the poor Christians at Jerusalem. So you understand this, by nature, no one is born generous and thoughtful and and giving and and sensitive to others, especially complete strangers. We're not like that. We're, We're not by nature, we're not givers, we're takers. But it takes God's work of grace in our lives to transform us from being self-absorbed, stingy tightwads who think only about spending money on ourselves and our pleasures into generous people who share their money with others, expecting nothing in return. I have a friend who once said to me, when I was converted, he said, Steve, my wallet was converted too. It's a great way of putting it. That's absolutely valid and biblically based. It's a biblically based statement because according to scripture, one of the distinguishing marks of a Christian is that he will share his physical resources with those in need. Folks, it's not an option. It's a command. And let me show you this. Ephesians chapter four. You'll take note of this. In Ephesians chapter four, let me just say the background in chapter four is that Paul is telling the Ephesians and by way of application, all of us, how Christians behave how they should behave. 
he makes a contrast between what he calls old man and new man. The old man is what we used to be before coming to faith in Christ. The new man is what we are now as new creatures in Christ. And throughout the the end of chapter 4, he says, put off old man behavior and replace it with new man behavior. That is to say that when we're saved, uh, and, and we learn that we become new creatures in Christ, it doesn't mean that automatically everything changes in our lives. We carry into our Christian lives old non-Christian baggage that needs to change. It's called sanctification. We're not changed immediately overnight. We have to put off when we see things that we that are wrong and we put on the right behavior. Let me show you this. Ephesians chapter 4. Starting in verse 22, he says that in reference to your former manner of life, he means the way you were before coming to Christ, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self or the new man, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So he talks about put off old man behavior, put on new man behavior. One of the things that we are to put off involves our money. Notice, jump down, if you will, to verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer. What a great statement. Stop stealing. There's no 10 steps that you have to take. Just stop it. He who steals must steal no longer. Stop being a thief. But he doesn't stop there. But rather, he says, here's how the new man behaves. He doesn't just stop stealing. He's not just you know, neutral now, he does something positive, but rather he, he who once stole from others must now labor performing with his own hands what is good. Now he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, so that here's why we work and work hard, not just to provide for ourselves and our families, but notice he says, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Folks, this is radical Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. We work hard not simply to pay our bills, not just to go on vacation, not just to buy things for ourselves. We ought to work hard so that we have enough money to share with others, minister to others. That's the biblical teaching. That's what Paul said. I don't see how you can take it any other way. Stop stealing, work hard so that you have some extra money to help other people. But it's not only here, and there are many places in the New Testament that stress this, but in 1 John chapter 3, starting at verse 16, most of us know John 3.16, but this is 1 John 3.16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. Yes, don't we know the love of God by the cross of Christ? He gave himself for us. Yes, we know that. But John goes on to say, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, he, he cannot mean by dying in their place. We, we can't lay down our lives. It doesn't mean physically in a redemptive sense. That happened once through the cross of Christ. He's talking about another way of laying down our lives, helping one another, giving of ourselves to others. Verse 17, he clarifies and explains this. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? By implication, John is saying it doesn't. 
It doesn't. If you say, yes, I love God and I accept what Christ has done for me. I see how generous the Lord has been to me and loving me and giving me salvation. But I see somebody in need, especially a fellow Christian, and I have the resources to help that fellow Christian. And I don't. John said, how could you say that you're a Christian? And, and notice what he says in verse 18. What a rebuke to to us if we don't obey this. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. He means don't go around telling people you love them, but you don't help them. Don't tell them I'll pray for you when you've got resources to help them. That's what John means. Now, it's absolutely true that the New Testament teaches that being a new creature in Christ, we are to be generous and thoughtful and giving to others. But why is generosity such a telling evidence of true conversion? And that's precisely what Paul is talking about with the Macedonians. He said their their giving, their generosity, revealed that they are true believers, that the grace of God is evident in their lives. But why? Why is it such an important evidence of conversion? Listen closely. Because when God saves us, he begins to conform us to the very image of Jesus Christ in character. We, we call this progressive sanctification. The closer we, we move towards heaven and being with him, the more we are to grow spiritually. And spiritual growth means to become like Christ in character. And Christ in character and by nature is the epitome of absolute generosity and self giving. That's why. This is an attribute. Generosity is an attribute of Jesus Christ. The supreme statement in the Bible on the generosity of our Lord is found right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9. When Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have to know it. If you're a believer, you know how gracious he's been. That though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Now, let's not misunderstand this. Paul is not saying that when Jesus came to earth, he, he took a, a vow of poverty. I happen to believe Jesus was in the, uh, the middle class range, not in the, the poor range. But that's not what he's talking about here. Paul is saying that although Jesus was rich in glory, in the sense that before his incarnation, he was in the form of God, and as such, he possessed all the glory and power and honor and majesty of deity. But he became poor by becoming a man. And while he never ceased being God, in becoming a man, Jesus did give up all the experiences of his divine riches so that at salvation, we who are absolutely bankrupt spiritually become spiritually wealthy by possessing all of the unsearchable riches in Christ. That's what salvation is. Jesus became poor so that we might be made rich, spiritually speaking. How many times have we been guilty of expressing compassion with our lips, but not with our hands? There's an old song by Twyla Paris called, I'll See You Sunday. In it, she sings about a friend who's having a hard time. She tells the friend, I suggest you call the preacher because, you know, I've never been too good with problems anyway. And the chorus says, but I'll see you Sunday morning, just a little after nine. I'll see you Sunday, and I'll hope you're doing fine. But just right now, I haven't got the time. We like that excuse, don't we? 
I don't have time. I don't have the money. I can't afford that. Sometimes that's valid, but the truth is, most times what we really mean is, I don't have the time or the money to do that and still do all these other things that I'd rather do. Pretty sure that there were plenty of things Jesus would rather have done than dying for our sins, but he did it anyway because he loves us that much. How much do we love him? Thanks for joining us today for Verse by Verse, a Bible class of the year taught by Pastor Steve Kreloff and produced by Verse by Verse Ministries, one of the ministries at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Pastor Steve has been the teaching pastor since 1981 at Lakeside, and you can learn more about Lakeside at lakesidechapel.com. I'd also like to invite you to visit another website, versebyverseradio.org. We have today's and hundreds of previous broadcasts available for free downloading or streaming. That's versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson. According to Acts chapter 11, the term Christian originated in a town called Antioch. Bible scholars tell us that it was a term of derision. People were making fun of believers because they were trying to imitate Christ. Well, do the people around us notice that we